This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff here to talk about in this episode include... The Annotated King in Yellow. How to Annotate. Food and Drink of the Belle Epoque. And Leo Taxchill. Cogs and Commissars is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's a clever card game of glorious robot revolution, where players control the means of production. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to check out immediately. For the motherboard! To promote the game's release and support friendly local game stores, Atlas Games has a special promotion! If you buy Cogs and Commissars at Brick and Mortar Game Store and send Selfie to Atlas, they mail you special Neon Botsky promo card. Botsky joins existing faction leaders like Simulenin, Gorobachev, and the Artificial Style Intelligence. And not a moment too soon. Buy Cogs and Commissars at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash Botsky. That's Botsky with a Y. Or follow link in show notes. Remember, the revolution will be mechanized. It's time once again to open up a closet full of hats, and you know what that means. That means that we're about to examine one of the many hats, among the many hats, that one of us wears as a a freelancer and game designer and and writer and scrivener and, uh, well, we never have a thing about us being podcasters because this is it, you're experiencing it. But this time around, if I'm throwing the segment, you know, it must be a project of Ken's, uh, but it is a project that is also dear to my heart because... Uh, this, folks, is a special Yellow King edition of uh, of the podcast because not only is my role-playing game, the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, perhaps on the way to the printer even as we speak, perhaps even being printed as we speak, but can you uh, are the focus of this among my many hats because you have completed and submitted the annotated King in Yellow to Arc Dream. Is that the... Uh, am, am I getting the title right? Uh, I believe that it is uh, just the King in yellow, uh, but I did the annotations and the extraneous matter, the appendices. Ah. Well, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure any matter by you is, is not truly extraneous. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for saying that. That's darn nice of you. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a deluxe edition of the uh, King in Yellow. It's going to be beautiful, uh, bound in uh, serpent leather, just like the original, I'm sure. Uh, it's going to have illustrations by Samuel Araya, the gifted uh, modern symbolist artist known to uh, fans of such games as Puppet Land uh, in the new edition, which Sam did the magical illustrations for there. These will be even more magical. And if you go to the Arc Dream website and look for the King in Yellow, you'll be able to pre-order this fine item at well, at some cost to you, I have to say that. There will be a cost. <laughs> and not just the madness and desolation of your soul, but also you know, some money. Right. Um, and so is this uh, straight up all of the stories in the original book, The uh, the King in Yellow, including uh, the non-fantastical ones? It is. It is all of the stories uh, in, and the opening poem, Casilda's Song. Uh, all the way through Rue Barre, the final story in that fine, fine collection. Uh, so in our next segment, we're going to get into the details of how one goes about uh, the annotating business in general. But uh, this time for this segment, I want to focus on uh, Chambers and the, the King in Yellow cycle. Uh, so uh, were you able to unearth much more about Robert W. Chambers, a the, at the time famous best-selling author, about whom there seems to be uh, precious little information. Yes, I was. Um, I did that by dint of going to the Regenstein Library and using their powerful computers to f- search uh, a whole raft of newspaper archives for Robert W. Chambers, and over and above the. Uh, news of the day that would have Robert W. Chambers telling a funny anecdote to his friends at the Century Club and book news announcing the uh, delivery of some new Chambers tome and the movie news announcing some new Chambers 
movie, uh, we had lots of information about Robert W. Chambers. I discovered lots of fun facts, uh, the funnest of which was what, at least according to an interview with him, uh, he hung in the Salon in 1889. Uh, many sources differ on what he hung, and according to an interview with him, he hung two drawings, one of three bulldogs, and one which he can't remember what it was. <laughs> and then he went fishing. <laughs> the Robert W. Chambers story, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I turned up a lot of little sort of facts like that, nothing too terribly earth-shaking. He was apparently a uh, loud and uh, enthusiastic member of a group called the Vigilantes, which did not, in fact, go around uh, uh, turn-of-the-century New York uh, beating up criminals wearing yellow masks, although that would be fun. Uh, in fact, they were a group of primarily writers and artists who agitated for entry into World War One. But he was a, a a big supporter of that. That seems to have been the that seems to have been the primary note of his politics, being uh, muscular Americanism in all of the Teddy Roosevelt sense, including going to foreign lands and hitting people if they were not properly American. Now, from reading his stories, uh, it definitely seems that he spent time in Paris. Oh yeah, uh, and also <laughs> possibly in Brittany. Uh, did you succeed in nailing down exactly when he was there? Uh, his Paris visit is is known to have happened between visit. His Paris stay is known to have happened between 1886 and um uh 1893. When specifically he went to Brittany is not uh, I did not find out because what he would do is he would write these little anecdotes for uh, and it's actually some longer pieces for Harper's Weekly about fishing and hunting and then say things like, well, in the trout streams of Brittany, this and such. And I mean, it, and you you can tell just by reading the Demoiselle Dis, not as well as, of course, Mystery of Choice, that, yeah, he'd spent a lot of time in Brittany. But in terms of specific he was in Brittany on this month or on this date that I have not yet been able to uncover. I don't say it's not out there somewhere. And I was only barely able to sift one academic collection. His papers are scattered all over the place. And I was only able to get in touch with one of the places that they are uh, at the university of Virginia, but there's other smaller uh, collections of his papers, like the university of Texas and whatnot. And were I to have had the time to do a proper uh, job of research, I would probably have uh, gone to those academic institutions and find out if there's individual pieces of correspondence or something that might have shed light on where he was. But there, are, but there's tons of information out there that nobody just really bothers to uh, put into one place. Uh, for example, where did he live when he wrote The King in Yellow? 60 Washington Park South. That was in a book called The New York of the Novelists. And you only find that out by doing a lot of searching on Robert W. Chambers. Right. Um, which I guess brings us to the uh, overall question of uh, why no one has pulled together all the research on Robert W. Chambers. And that's because he wrote somewhere between uh, four and a half and six and a half good stories. <laughs> what? What's your you number? You are harsher on Robert W. than I am, but I grant you that you are not off by a factor of five or even ten. Uh, so what would be your uh, uh, canon of really great Robert Chambers stories. I would, I would put, uh, the, most of the collection, um, the, the King and Yellow collection. I think that, uh, barring Prophet's Paradise, which I think is a little self-indulgent. I think they're all strong in their way. Some of them obviously stronger than others being the Yellow Cycle and Street of the, uh, Four Winds, which I think is a really good little Poe-esque, uh, piece. And I think it was actually based on, uh, Chambers reading Baudelaire, but that's neither here. Actually, it's in the annotations. I would say there's some stories in Mystery of Choice. I think that uh, uh, stories like um, the Purple Emperor are are good. I think that uh, the the passage, what is it, the passage passenger, whichever one that is, the passeur, that's it, is 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 a strong ghost story. Uh, I like the messenger. I think that there's some stuff in um, uh, Maker of Moons that's worth salvaging. I actually like. About half of the story maker of moons, it just goes on too long. And the harbor master out of In Search of the Unknown is just terrific. It's, it's a really good Gilman story. And the love interest is a little tacked on, but that happens in a lot of things that are otherwise good. And how much of the, uh, execrable dross did you feel you had to uh, read your way through in order to properly, uh, annotate uh, the king in yellow? Well, I did have to read, uh, in the quarter all the way through because that is sort of the prequel to the Parisian stories. 
of In the King in Yellow, although in technicality, Rue Beret is a prequel to In the Quarter. Uh, many of the characters cross over, for example, between uh, In the Quarter and that latter quartet of stories. In right, he does the, the Dennis collection. Wheatley thing of having the same characters in both supernatural and non-supernatural stories. Right. I mean, and so I had to read that. I I looked at some of the other ones. I'd read Cardigan uh, before, and I actually like Cardigan. I think Cardigan's a fine novel. If you told me that that was Edgar Rice Burroughs, I would say, yeah, that's second rate Edgar Rice Burroughs. That, that tracks. Um, uh, and, and so there's, there's parts of those. I had to go through, uh, a lot of his lesser other works, uh, Eol, which is supposed to be funny and is absolutely not. Um, I read Tracer of Lost Persons, which I think is, uh, enjoyable in a lot of ways and the sort of, uh, v- detective fiction with a twist, a uh, way that it is. Um, although none of it is like, you know, Sherlock Holmes good, but some of it is, is actually pretty good. And I had to sort of at least dip into a lot of the other titles just to look for things. Um, I wound up reading a good, a good chunk of mystery of choice, for example, and I didn't regret most of that at all. Uh, and I had to skim, although I did not read admittedly, uh, the dark star, which is a, uh, a, a, a spy story, a fairly conventional and not very good spy story, but it has a weird astrological framing device that turns out to be relevant uh, to discussions of the King in Yellow because of, hey, guess what? Dark stars. There you go. So uh, you found his address when he wrote the stories. Are there any other uh, sort of uh, eureka factlets that, uh, that jumped out at you as you uh, put this together? Well, my biggest eureka was to find the what is probably the source the Chambers borrowed uh, adapted the black stars in the sky of Carcosa from. I found them just shining away in a novel by Heinrich Heine, uh, which no one has ever mentioned. And, uh, there it is. Uh, the, the, there's a bit in the novel Florentine Nights by Heine, which was translated by uh, Charles Godfrey Leland in 1891 during the run up to Heine's bicentennial. Heine was very big news in the 1890s because of his bicentennial, because of the German anti-Semitic efforts to prevent a Heine monument from being built in Germany. And they wound up building it, in fact, in New York. And there was a great deal of wrangling about where in New York they were going to put it. And that would have been in the papers as well. Heine was big news. And sure enough, there is a straight up reference uh, to the Black Stars. And I will quote from Leland's translation of Heine's novel. But the redder the sea became, so much more pallid grew the heaven. And when at last the waving water looked like bright scarlet blood, then the sky overhead became ghostly clear, all corpse white, and out came the stars, and these stars were black, black as shining anthracite. And if that is not the sky above Carcosa, I will eat my hat. So as you assembled uh, all of these facts and and references, and uh, what uh, evolved for you in terms of sort of a critical framework for... uh, the, the Yellow King cycle. It's, it's significance has been felt through its influence, uh, specifically, of course, the, uh, the strange book that alters your uh, perceptions and, uh, uh, brings evil down upon you or uh, dr- drives you mad, uh, of course, is uh, the Necronomicon in Lovecraft. And then, uh, that goes on to become a major horror trope, uh, in and of itself. Uh, but is there, uh, once you set aside the, uh, question of its influence, if you just look at Chambers itself, how would you describe the the ethos of those of his works that are worth considering? I mean, in, in, the, in the King in Yellow, there is a very clear sort of a duality presented of Eros and Thanatos. Uh, this, he prefigures Freud, because Freud made nothing up. Freud just borrowed from writers. Um but the notion of That's why writers like Freud, writers like Freud, uh, but the um, uh, <laughs> very much from uh, the, the, the notion that there are these two irrational drivers of human thought, Eros and Thanatos, the death wish and the sex wish are very present in King and Yellow and King and Yellow is to an extent. It's about sort of normal society, bourgeois order existing between those two threats or these two implacable forces, either of which can be uh, manifested as the king in yellow. And usually when he manifests as one, it turns into the other. And so all of the stories are about death 
and uh, sex, with the exception of Court of uh, the Dragon, which is just about death. Uh, there is, it's, it's the chamber story with no love interest in it. And that is because it's very short and the woman is dead. Um, which is also true of, uh, uh, Street of the Four Winds, but that one is a, uh, straight up love story, uh, in the Poe fashion. Um, so the, those, those two thematic, uh, sort of energies drive the collection and they connect the Paris stories with the Yellow Mythos stories, as well as with Demoiselle Dis and with, uh, uh, Prophet's Paradise. And that, sort of depiction of the, of this sort of, um, uh, not Lovecraftian, but this sense of order besieged is, I think, what gives all of the stories that connection to the, the, the weird, um, uh, and, and the, and, and the uncanny, even the relatively straight up ones. Right. So the, the idea of, of perceptual horror comes from the fact that the book is, uh, not only eroding uh, the, uh, individual's ability to perceive reality, as in the, uh, you know, the unreliable narration we see in Repair of Reputations. Right. Uh, but is, uh, and that gives it sort of, sort of the re- reality horror focus that is definitely what I, you know, seized on, uh, in the Yellow King role-playing game as the thing that I, uh, find interesting and the thing that I, uh, use to, uh, construct a somewhat fuller cosmic reason tying everything together that is not uh Lovecraft or Durleth's uh cosmic sense, but is rather right. a specific um hopefully is an extrapolation from uh Chambers. Uh you you've mentioned his influences. Uh uh I guess there's also uh Du Maupassant is one of them and Bierce would be another one. Are there other influences that you would identify on his work? Yeah the Maupassant influence on Chambers is super under valued. It, it's very much a thing where if you know de Maupassant and you read Chambers, you see it instantly, but it's not in any of the critical literature. That's one of the great things, by the way, about studying Chambers is it's all virgin field uh, academically. There's been virtually no work done on him. I think there's like three scholarly monographs on Chambers at all. Uh, so you almost can't help but uh, make uh, path-breaking research discoveries just if you look at it you know, for longer than a couple of minutes. Um, I, I did find a, uh, author named Marcel Schwab, who was a buddy of, uh, Oscar Wilde. He's sort of a pre, sort of Borges avant la lettre. He writes these sort of weird, elliptical sort of stories, sort of, uh, encyclopedia entries. And they, um, uh, have sort of these weird little fa- fabulous qualities. But there's one of his stories called The King in the Golden Mask, which was published in 1892. And, uh, is about an unmasked blind stranger who confronts the last line of a line of golden masked kings in an unnamed city. And the king discovers that he's a leper and he blinds himself and he rejects the throne and he wanders out in the world. And Schwab manages to imply without really implying that it's a cycle that he will wander into the next city and un- uh, unveil the next king and so on and so on. And it's sort of this strange little hermetic universe that Schwab built. Actually, it, just discovering Marcel Schwab made the whole project, you know, worth it by itself, even if I weren't fonder of Chambers than you are, although granted, uh, there is still a great whack of Chambers that neither you nor I nor any living man will ever read again. So, I guess at this point, it's time for us to uh, segue through this commercial, but we'll uh, uh, put a pin in that, because uh, when we come back, we're going to talk in more general terms about how one goes about uh, creating an annotated uh, version of something. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity. 
caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? And guess what? It's the other side of the commercial. It's time for How to Write Good. And as previously explained, we're going to keep going on the topic of annotations, but we're, we're going to move away from the specific subject of uh, chambers to the more general subject of how you go about uh, doing this. But obviously, in this case, uh, Ken Chambers is still going to be your example. So yes. uh, <laughs> for someone who uh, is going to uh, has a work of literature uh, that presumably has the depth and interest required to justify an annotated version. Uh, and of course, there's lots of uh, great annotated versions. You and I uh, had the good fortune of sitting down uh, with Leslie Klinger at one point, and he's done uh, the annotated Frankenstein and Dracula and... And Sandman and Lovecraft. He's, he's sort of our, our modern-day um, Martin Gardner in terms of great annotators to look up to. Him and Sabine Baringold and Martin Gardner are carved onto the extraordinarily recondite Mount Rushmore of annotators. Right. So step one, go and find all of those people's works and see what they did. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> borrow from better people than you, a common thread in my, in my career and one that I will never abandon. Right. Uh, and, and, and actually solid uh, advice. Yeah. Um, so you've, <laughs> uh, you now look, at, uh, you've seen, a uh, hypothetical person, uh, what, uh, great annotation looks like. How can do you go about assembling your material? What, how do you, uh, begin to, uh, research, uh, something based on the text that you have at hand? I mean, there's, there's sort of, there's three tracks that an annotation has to perform. And the first thing is it just has to explain stuff that you're not going to get now. And those can be topical political references. They can be references to then common but now obscure or then obscure but now even more obscure facts. They can be anything that, that a reader in the year that the book was written would have probably gotten or would have had a better chance to get than the reader now so that no one's jammed up on what exactly is a mall stick or what are what's a concierge uh, do uh, living in an apartment building instead of standing at the front of a hotel uh, getting you opera tickets. I don't understand. And, and just, to, sorry to interrupt, uh, just on the absolute most prosaic level of how you're mechanically doing this, do you have a printout of the text that you are highlighting? Do you, are you writing in an actual uh, book? Are you uh, putting electronic comments on an electronic document? How are you doing that? What, what, I'm, what I did, and I don't say that this is necessarily the best way, but I had the the, the text of the King in Yellow right there in front of me, and I just went through and had my open annotations doc, and then I would do a little squib that would be the the word or the phrase that I'm annotating in bold, and then beneath it I would write my annotation. I didn't do any sort of intermediate step of, of either physically highlighting a book. Uh, when we did Dracula back in the day for Dracula dossier, I had a really garbagey Dover edition of Dracula that I would write in, um, uh, to, to do the, the stuff that, uh, Gareth and I were doing for Dracula dossier. And I think that if I had not had, um, uh, if it had not been more trouble than it was worth to find a cheap copy of Robert W. Chambers, I might've done that, but, uh, cheap textually sound copies of Robert W. Chambers, uh, surprisingly are not abundant in paper form, although they're all over the internet in internet form. Um, and, and I could have done, like you say, electronic comments and an electronic document, but then I would have had to figure out how to strip them back out. Whereas if I just write them in a separate word file, they're pre-stripped. So uh, getting back to your uh, what you're actually uh, annotating. So you've already described how you're looking for then topical references that people need explained to them today. What's your second stream? Uh, the second strand is what other people have usefully said about the the the, the text or sort of the literary influence level where it's like this 
bit of incident of uh handing um uh Lewis uh Castain a manuscript and saying, I want your oath that you will read this manuscript all the way through, and you say, That sounds an awful lot like um uh, the Ambrose Beer story, Suitable Surroundings, in which a crazy person hands an enemy a manuscript and says I demand your oath that you will read this manuscript all the way through. Now, Beers does entirely other things with it, but we're knowing, we know that Chambers is, has read this collection of stories. Here's another story in that collection that seems to have a resonance with the, with the, with the text that you're annotating. Toss it in there. Or as I mentioned in the previous segment, Marcel Schwab has a crazy story about a golden masked king. Maybe that's relevant. Oh, look, it's 1892. It's absolutely something that Chambers would have read while he was in Paris, reading tons and tons and tons of a uh, yellow nineties Bella Pock material and uh, would have uh, had to uh, run across it or would have very likely run across it. He had to run across Maupassant. He only probably ran across Schwab and you say, well, look at that. That's, a, that's an influence. Or as we talked previously, uh, go through the 330 uh, known Maupassant stories, figure out which of them might apply to the King in yellow and toss those up at, at the proper point where it's like, here are all of the stories that Maupassant did that I know of that have an unreliable narrator. Let's put them into repair of reputations and uh, show that uh, Chambers is part of her tradition, not just making stuff up. Now, in order to actuate that, are you, uh, would you recommend already knowing a vast corpus of, uh, I mean, obviously it helps yeah, if you not only sure have helps, read, Doc. but can bring to mind that beer story. Uh, in this case, which was it? Did you look at that and go, oh, that's Beers? Or did you then search through Beers for things? I mean, in, in this particular case, uh, there are other people who have annotated Chambers before, uh, some of them uh, quite well. Uh, there's an Oxford University professor, I assume, named Daryl Jones, who's their sort of go-to guy for 20th century horror or the, and the gothic. Uh, and he's done, uh, for example, a really great annotation of M.R. James. And he did a collection called uh, Horror Stories, Classic Tales from Hoffman to Hodgson, in which he annotated Repairer, though none of the other uh, Chambers stories. But it's from his annotations that he says, hey, maybe you should check out Bierce's uh, um, uh, Suitable Surroundings. And I went and read it, and it's, you know, gosh darn it, Daryl Jones has earned that um, uh, position at Oxford. And and when it, with an author who has had more critical commentary on him, like, say, Lovecraft, you know, you can a lot of that secondary material has been gathered and then it's your job to sift it and figure out what goes where in how much, which is important or relevant to, to the reader you're aiming it at. In this case, of course, I had the great advantage that, as I said, literally nothing has been done on chambers or very little. So every salient fact that someone else has figured out about chambers belonged in my annotations. And uh, Daryl Jones provided a good number of them for repair not for the whole right. cycle. Um, and there's a third thread. And the third thread is your own critical analysis. And that should be the last thing that you do, because uh, in theory, you're annotating it for an intelligent reader who can be trusted to assemble their own critical response to a text. But if you, for example, have noticed the surprising connotations of Eros and Thanatos reappearing like um, uh, like whack-a-moles throughout a, a collection of uh, 1890s uh, fiction, perhaps you should point that out. Because as I say previously, no one has pointed this out about Chambers. But uh, again, if you have a critical sort of response or uh, uh, Klinger, we talked about previously, uh, likes to have sort of conceits. So in his Dracula uh, annotation, the conceit is that Dracula survived the novel and is uh, forcing Stoker to write it wrong. Uh, and so whenever there's a problem, uh, uh, Klinger will say, here, obviously, we see that Dracula's forced Stoker to do this when the actual answer is B. So if you have sort of a meta conceit uh, or you have a, a critical uh, approach that you're applying throughout the text, that goes in that third level. That's your so, contribution. It's a much-needed fun uh, amidst the footnotes. Exactly. And as opposed to the contribution of previous scholars and the actual elucidation of the text. Uh, so if you were uh, uh, given an even bigger truckload of money to put together a uh, best of chambers anthology, how would you uh, go about that and what further researches would you then embark upon? I mean, I would probably have to finish reading at least all of the weird chambers. So I would have to read the tree of heaven, for example, which 
uh, I've dipped into once and said, well, that's John Buchan did it better when it was called the torn curtain. Um, uh, although he did it after the tree of heaven, as it turns out, but still he did do it better. Bucking. I'm sorry, Canada, um, and Scotland, but, but there's, you know, it would, it would have to basically be going back and reading all of the weird chambers, which I do not look forward to because for example, I did say bucket load of money. Yes. Yeah. Right. I would do it. That's the kind of guy I am. Um, and then, you would sort of want to assemble, you would, you would be answering the question, are you making a chambers that will all speak critically, uh, to future horror or to chambers? In which case you would kind of have no, uh, excuse for not including, say, the Slayer of Souls and the Maker of Moons, which are very important, uh, works to chambers and for his influence in the later field. Or would you not include them on the basis that they're not actually as good as the Harbor Master? And that's just really, you know, what's the job of this collection? And there are other uh, anthologies of Chambers that make that decision. So, for example, Hugh Lamb uh, takes two of the stories out of uh, Westrow Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons, and puts them right into his collection of Chambers supernatural stories, because he feels that, you know, the guy spawned a 20 year long uh, radio program. He's probably a key chamber. He's, he, he may be the context in which more people have heard the work of chambers than in any other is that radio show. And, and so you, you pull stuff out of that. And I would have to read all of it again to, to find out if any of it is actually, you know, really great as opposed to just kind of clever, which is what it was. Well, I think we're folding back into discussing chambers rather than annotations. So it's time to stop discussing either of them move through this commercial and see what hides for us on the other side. when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it. Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep this podcast from tearing off the pallid mask of demise alongside such Patreon backers as... Ernest Muller. Tristan Knight. Jason Franzella. Jesse Lowe. And Diane Donaldson. The clinking of glassware, the rattling of tableware, and the imprecations of French chefsware tell us that we have entered a particularly elegant uh, iteration of the food hut. And here, Robin, you and I are sitting down, uh, across a damask tablecloth, perhaps. Uh, there is a live, uh, string quartet because we're in a nice place. And, uh, look at that. Everyone around us is speaking French. Are we in, uh, Quebec? No, we are in Etin Nadefav, and we are talking about the food and drink of the Belle Epoque, the great era of Robert W. Chambers' great fiction, and, uh, uncoincidentally, perhaps, of your own Paris 1895 segment of the Yellow King role-playing game Quartet of Settings. Right, so, uh, if you are playing, uh, the art student characters in, uh, that, uh, game sequence, uh, you're not starting out at the fancy restaurant. No, you are you not. You later on... You know, your rich relative might come to town and, and take you out, or you might have your rich friend show up and uh, take him on a, a night at the town. And uh, for that, 
our uh, beautiful uh, collage found object uh, study of Paris in 1895, Absinthe and Carcosa, absolutely uh, gives you everything you need to go on a grand tour. But so the, the thing that you're eating from day to day, probably, first of all, as a student, are, uh, are beans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this is the uh, classic uh, fill you up carbohydrate filled uh, meal of, of the era. Uh, and so you might go to a, a, a restaurant like the Maison d'Arblay, which is explained uh, in Absinthe and Carcosa or your uh, local tavern that the, the GM has made up as that your student ha- hangout. But, you know, your, your morning meal is probably, you know, a, a baguette and some jam and a lot of butter. Uh, and then, uh, but your big meal of the day uh, is a lot of beans. Uh, you may or may not want to describe that in depth to your players, depending on their fondness for flatulence jokes, because uh, <laughs> that can be a little, little tedious. Um, and of course, you are drinking a lot. Even if you are an extremely poor artist or, or poet, uh, like uh, good old Verlaine, uh, you may be, uh, you know, down on your luck, but you still have money. Uh, to drink a lot, or people are willing to stand you drinks to to drink a lot. Right, a bottle of wine, a, a even a fairly tolerable bottle of wine, is only like two francs. Um, you 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 don't really have to blow out a ton of money to to have a bottle of wine in Paris in the 1890s or now, probably, but certainly not then. Yes, it's, it's absolutely a staple item. It's like you know, you, you buy that before you buy your bread. Mm-hmm. The wine you are probably drinking at this time in France, if you are drinking wine is a burgundy. Uh, this is a generation after the uh, the great blight that uh, wiped out the uh, French grapevines. Uh, we can maybe do a whole segment on that later. We should, but actually. It's a, it's a great topic. There was a particular type of aphid that... Uh, the phylloxera. The, the phylloxera, deadly phylloxera. That uh, wreaked havoc on, on the vines, and eventually that was solved by, uh, uh, with great reluctance, the <laughs> French vintners uh, grafted... Uh, American vines. American Zinfandel vines. Yes. Tough, elbowy, uh, uncouth vines onto theirs in order to save them. But there were a couple of generations there where the uh, wines were not quite so readily available as they had been through uh, centuries and centuries of uh, French eating and drinking. And so uh, the wine has begun to re- recover or has uh, has started to recover in uh, in 1895. But it's still uh, great wines are, are hard to come by and... Uh, Burgundy recovers first, and that's the one that you are probably, as a, a player character, uh, drinking. But the thing that has become wildly popular in this era, uh, I've already mentioned it in the title of one of the books, is absinthe. And this becomes sort of the replacement for wine that everybody uh, slugs back. Uh, and so this is a... Uh, and we've we slated absinthe before <laughs> on the show. Yeah. Um, and so this is a an, an anise-flavored... Uh, spirit, uh, which is then, uh, has other herbs in it. So it's a, you know, it's like a ferny branca and a, a black licorice drink in, in one. And, uh, one of the ingredients, the wormwood plant, uh, is credited with, uh, giving absinthe hallucinatory qualities, which of course in a reality horror game, um, you definitely want it to have. And this was, uh, personified as the green fairy. The green fairy is the thing that arises out of your absinthe and uh, brings you these hallucinogenic dreams. Now, um, and current, present-day absinthe is uh, the wormwood content in it is is heavily restricted because it is psychoactive. Unless you buy it from the, the Czech Republic, where the wormwood content has never been restricted, and uh, nor would it be. Right, and and you, you will note that the Green Fairy is not running rampant in the Czech Republic. Yeah. It's the Czech Republic, uh, but uh, that... Really, the reason that uh, absinthe had the incredible impact that it did on a generation of poets and painters and uh, spiraled a lot of them into the gutter was that uh, it just had incredibly high alcohol content uh, at its time. Yeah, it's like 160 proof. Right. (laughs) That's a lot of alcohol if your drinking habits up until then have been beer and wine and maybe a little brandy. Right. And our characters slug it back. Uh, they drink it as if it is wine, even though its alcohol content is off the charts compared to wine. And, of course, they slug back their wine as they would their beer. So, uh, basically, the, the real effects of absence are just those of extreme uh, alcohol consumption. 
Um, and, uh, and that, uh, perfectly dovetails, of course, with the idea that uh, reality is slipping and sliding out from under your, uh, feet. Uh, you might want to describe the, uh, the ritual of, uh, absinthe. And so, um, it is, uh, bitter and unpleasant. And, uh, we all know what we do with that. We bring out the sugar. So, right. uh, there's a special slotted spoon that, uh, your, uh, either the character or the, the bartender will place uh, over the over the glass, it's an ornate slotted spoon, and then uh, you pour water uh, onto the sugar cube that you place on the slotted spoon, and that uh, uh, drips into the green spirit. If you like to well, actually, you can wait and, until someone calls it a liqueur and then pounce on them because uh, the sugar being added afterwards as part of this ritual means that it's a spirit, not a liqueur. If the sugar uh, were uh, in it as part of its manufacture... It would then be a, a liqueur. So and nobody in 1895, by the way, is setting their absinthe on fire. That was invented by posers in the 90s, the 1990s. Yes, exactly. There's there's no flaming uh, uh, sugar cubes or, or anything like that. No, you just you drop you you drip the sugar into the absinthe and uh, pour cold water onto the sugar to melt it, and the result is that the absinthe turns this beautiful opalescent louche green. It's super, if it drank like it looked, it would be one of the best beverages in the world. As it is, it is a monster that will kill you. <laughs> it, it is still black licorice and weird herbs. Yeah, it is. It is a thing. Um, uh, there's a great Oscar Wilde quote about absinthe. After the first glass, you see things as you wish they were. After the second, you see things as they are not. Finally, you see things as they really are. And that is the most horrible thing in the world. And this is from a guy who saw a lot of stuff back in his day. Uh, he did. <laughs> um, I, I, rather than risk this becoming the absinthe hut, Robin, perhaps we should yeah. stop uh, uh, lingering in our green hour and move on to uh, the violet hour when we are hanging out after the show, uh, enjoying something else. Uh, well, I thought that we would end by uh, the point where your rich relative comes and takes you uh, to a restaurant. And the beginning of, re of restaurant culture, as we know it, is starting at this time in uh, in France. And so uh, one of the great things about the uh, internet is that you can find period menus from uh, all sorts of places. And in this case, I thought we would quickly go through uh, the items uh, on a menu at the Continental Hotel. Uh, this is for a banquet on December 11th, so especially fancy meal. And this was uh, served to the attendees of the International Monetary Congress. So, so you know is, they had the bank. They had the money. Yes, this is this is fine dining indeed. And I thought that we would uh, uh, go through the uh, list of items and see how many seem familiar th uh, things that we would eat uh, today and whether we would eat them or not. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the soups, uh, the soup course... Uh, is, uh, we would have had a choice of, although we're, we're turn of the century eaters, so I suspect we're having- I don't think having, we get a choice. I think they're all coming. I think we're eating everything. We are having a 35 course meal. Yes. <laughs> right. And so that the soups are, there's a, uh, a lettuce mousse with poultry quenelles. Uh, that, that, that is something that I would try. I don't know what a, uh, a, a lettuce mousse is exactly. Does that- Sounds uh, like sort of coleslaw, except terrible. Right. Right. Except it's, because it would right. be so some maybe sort of, that is not a actually literally a, a soup. Yeah, but it's in the soup course because it's it's uh, light and friendly, and you'll note there's no salad course. Right. Um, so uh, there's the crayfish uh, bisque. Uh, I would totally. Eat I would. That. I would it's eat served. that and triple uh, on Sunday. Uh, and then uh, varied hors d'oeuvres. Uh, so they're probably uh, some of them are pretty good. Served as part of the meal, so I would definitely uh, nosh down on that. Uh, there uh, is fun a fun fact: the word canapé is being just beginning to be used for an hors d'oeuvre now, right about now. Previously, it's a sofa, but because the delicious items sit on the on the little uh, cookie, uh, like you'd sit on a sofa, they're canapés. So we've had the soup course, which, have, as we've learned, is not just soup, but has uh, appetizer and and munchies with it. Uh, then there is a course that goes in between. Uh, the main and the, uh, and the soups, which is not yet called an appetizer, but it's called a relevé. And, uh, uh, we have a Dieppe turbot with muslin sauce, uh, which I take as a, a white sauce for fish. I, I hope uh, it's so a white sauce as opposed to something that is actually made with muslin, which is yeah, a fabric and does not belong in your turbot. So now they're serving us the entrees. Uh, first entree is the Renaissance beef tenderloin, uh, which is, Something that you might, uh, I think is probably more roasty than you would be served in a, a fine dining establishment 
today, but certainly great wadges of beef are still a huge part of any fine dining experience. Absolutely. The poulars a la wagram, so that's uh, small chickens. Uh, and uh, I was unable to uh, discover what a la wagram meant, but obviously that's presumably that is a specific uh, sauce uh, at that time. Uh, there's um, lobster parisienne, uh, which again would be uh, a lobster dish that would be seasoned in, in a particular way. But now that we're done with our entrees, uh, we have a dessert. It's a Marquise au Kirsch, which is a, a rich dessert made with chocolate, butter, sugar, co- cocoa, eggs and cream. So it's like a little, um, uh, a little cake. And then au Kirsch means it's doused in Kirsch liqueur. And so we must be done. We must be done with, oh, no, no, we're not because we're done with the entrees. <laughs> now it's time for the roasts. Yes. So we've had the entrees. We've had a dessert, uh, a prelude dessert. Uh, and now we're on to the roast. So, and the roast is a pheasant flanked by quails on salad. Uh, Ken, he's starting to get full. <laughs> I may have overindulged in the Marquise O'Kirsch, and now the fa- I'm just you thought at my it was pheasant, over because the dessert had arrived. But I feel no, like I'm not doing like- justice to my roast pheasant yes. flanked by quail. Okay, well, and if things <laughs> and aren't it's rich on enough, salad, then- Robin, look, we found yeah. the salad course. It's under the pheasant. It's course. under the quail. <laughs> yes, where where no one will find it, and uh, and then. There's a uh, foie gras pâté, so it's not an it's not at the beginning, it's not an appetizer as you would get now, but it's a uh, again a spacer uh, between uh, unbilled early dessert and then what is actually billed as dessert. Then a terrible trick, which of is course played. begins with that classic French dessert, the artichoke heart with asparagus spikes. Yes, that <laughs> is that is a a rotten trick or a, a sop to the turn of the century vegans, one or the other. <laughs> now we come to the, the Valkyrie bomb. Now a bomb, you can still uh, be served at uh, all sorts of uh, uh, restaurants that have French pastries. It's your sort of dome-like, uh, often with a hard uh, chocolate or white chocolate covering over cake. Uh, now it turns out that after 1895, if you start Googling for the words Valkyrie and bomb, something completely different than a dessert comes up. Because uh, of course that those that, that was the code name for the operation to blow up Hitler. <laughs> so I was unable to specifically find out what a Valkyrie bomb this was. This dessert I, is Hitler killing good. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that that's it would get him when he was a baby if it was in 1895. Mm-hmm. He he died of uh, diabetes when you fed him that. Yes. Uh, well, and we can feed him some punch cake as well. So this is a an Eastern European cake, and it's a layered cake with a middle layer soaked in rum and jam. You can find recipes to make good. that online. And I it, would eat that today. It looks super delish. Um, I would not have any room for it after all the rest of this <laughs> After course. the rest of that. And then they serve uh, fruit, and there's a basket of candies. And then, of course, if you're... If you haven't had enough sugar yet, then the Petit Fours arrive. Right. And uh, many of the wines on the list are ones that are still... Uh, uh, familiar today, though of course you wouldn't be getting them with these vintages. So there's uh, Madeira, which is a, a port, uh, High Saturn, which is a, a, a what Simon would call a pudding wine. And I'm not sure what it's doing that early. I mean, the port and the Saturn coming that early in the list makes me terrified that someone is expecting me to eat crayfish beast while drinking Sauterne, which I don't want to hear about. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what uh, what order that is. Uh, it does seem to be sort of on its head. So it, Yeah, it, it's, it looks backward to me, but I'm sure that we'll get a lot of angry letters from 1895 restaurateurs telling us that only a cad would drink their Sauterne after you've had your punch cake and your Valkyrie bomb. You've destroyed your palate for sugar, you fool. So anyway... Uh, it looks like the main drink at the table is a Medoc. Robin, do you have a Medoc? Yeah, so that, that seems like it's your table wine because yeah. it doesn't give a, a vintage. It just uh, says it's in crafts. So okay. that's your, that's your you main one. Used to splash down your Dieppe turbot. And then uh, the fancy ones are your Pontet Canet 1880 and your Pomar from uh, 1876. So uh, that shows us that uh, GMs, that uh, the super fancy vintages are 15 to 20 years uh, in the past. And of course, that's just at the edge of when, uh, the wines were, uh, being, uh, coming back online again after the mid-century phylloxera uh, crisis. And then, uh, you've, uh, wind up with some champagne. And of course, there's coffee and liqueurs at the end. So that's, uh, very much, uh, like what you would, uh, uh get today, except, uh, today, uh, you would not expect to eat that much today, even right. probably as, uh, 
a member of the International Monetary Congress. And if so, you've yeah. read about like the famous gourmands of this era, like your Diamond Jim Brady's and people like that, they would they would polish this kind of thing off, and then they'd say, "Well, where are we going for dinner?" Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people legitimately would eat. I mean, and not just people who ate as a crazy exhibition, but just were rich people who could would would go reliably out and have ten course meals, fifteen course meals, and the the courses as we've seen here were not just like one meat with a bunch of little dishes around them. It was, you know, a whole, uh, a whole ox they would, they would cook or they would have, they would have a roast. They would have, um, uh, a, a big poultry course. They would have a big fish course. Uh, they would usually have uh, two or three because there would be a game course that would come after the poultry and the fish. So it's just a, you know, four meat courses plus all of the uh, aspects and um, uh, desserts and, and 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 middle and second desserts and and uh, and and fish and the rest of it. So it's 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 a giant exercise to eat well in uh in in this era. And I'm I'm not sure what I mean. It may, is it? Do you think is it like in the 1950s people would just drink five martinis and then go off and play around a golf? It was just uh, men were giants and tougher back then, or was there some sort of uh, like tapeworm epidemic we just don't know about. I'm not sure exactly when people's stomachs got the size of human stomachs today. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, part of it, I think, is sort of a bust boom feasting cycle taken to extremes. Right. It's that, like every day is Thanksgiving if you don't know what, that you're going to eat that tomorrow. Right. So, it, you know, it might not, you know, that that big meal that you have may be the big meal that you have once a month or whatever. Um, uh, historical gluttony stories, if you want to uh, pick up... Uh, Joseph Mitchell's book of New Yorker journalism from the beginning of the 20th century called Up in the Old Hotel. There's a, uh, one of his classic stories is about the uh, New York steak dinner, the beef steak, uh, which is uh, yet another story of just uh, the incredible quantities of beef and beer that people seem to be able to put away. In and and beef steak nights used to be stag nights. They would be stag dues and you would go there with all of your, your cronies. Uh, uh, Stoker had a beefsteak night at the, at the Savoy Theater and you would eat the, sometimes you'd eat the steak standing up. They wouldn't even have silverware. You just tear it off the bone yeah. with your teeth like an animal. And, and the one, uh, Mitchell talks about is both men and women, uh, just plowing down uh, amazing, uh, quantities of, of, uh, of food. But again, who knows? when they next ate after that. Right. Um, anyway, I think we've uh, well and truly uh, digressed to the topic of general period gluttony and can therefore, uh, we're not gluttons. We're not going to continue devouring this segment. We're going to go, oh, that, I think there's an hors d'oeuvre on the horizon. Ken, let's go see what that is. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? We go into the familiar Greystone, but instead of winding our way up the creakety stairs toward the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, we turn into the spacious Danish modern appointed reception area on the first floor on the street level, and here there are uh, Gustav Klimt's on the wall and an Odilon Redon, and oh, look at that. It's not a glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky. It's one of those cool uh, liquid art uh, images of Madame Blavatsky done in a sort of 
postmodern ironical tinge by some uh, person with tattoos and only half their hair, because we are in the precincts of the other consulting occultist, the one that takes, he's, he's like the Anstruther to my Watson. And so when people need consultant and uh, upstairs is closed, they turn here and they get some proper consultant uh, for this, our series of Belle Epoch French occultists. And perhaps sometimes we'll go upstairs and sometimes we'll go here into the uh, the, the reception room of the other consulting occultist. But today we're talking Leo Takshiel. And Robin, you have, uh, all the skinny on Leo Takshiel, who is a fellow who is a great deal of fun. If you don't mind the fact that he probably, you know, nearly got people killed. What's, what's, what's your take? Okay. So, uh, yeah. So we're, we're, uh, just as, uh, when, uh, we did a series on the Nazi cult when Ken had that book out, uh, now that, uh, Yellow King is at the printers, I thought it would be good to go through the list of, uh, occultist characters uh, that we uh, that I researched for that book and uh, turn them into a series. Uh, there is one notable figure that we have already done. So an episode of uh, 267, uh, you'll hear our segment on uh, Josephine Peladan. So Taxil, I thought, is a, a great place to, to kick this off because he is, in a way, a really contemporary figure because he's uh, very much a grifter propagandist uh, who switches sides, uh, ideological sides a number of times and, uh, shows us that, uh, fake political information, uh, and making a buck off it is not a new phenomenon that just as, as with so many other things that, uh, the modern age, the, con- not even the modern age, but the contemporary age, our age, uh, almost everything in it except possibly, uh, cell phone apps, uh, but- is in, uh, Paris in, in the 1880s. So, uh, Leo T- uh, Taxil, uh, is a, a political writer and an essayist, uh, and of course that's not his real name, because I told you he was a grifter. His real name is Gabriel Jogand Pajaz, and, uh, he is, uh, you know, sort of the, the Roger Stone of his era, uh, and, uh, uh creates a, a series of hoaxes and, uh, pivots between different ideologies. So, he starts out, uh, in the, uh, before the 1880s, he's a, and he's, he's in his forties, uh, in this era. So he starts really young as a, a young, uh, ambitious grifter. And he starts out as an anti-clerical rabble rouser. So one of his first books is, uh, the secret loves of Pope Pius, yeah. Wh- whatever number Pius was at the time. It was that number Pius. And these depict, uh, the, uh, behind the scenes at the, of the Catholic church hierarchy as, uh, Desadian debauchery uh, writ large, which it maybe uh, what we know today might not be as untrue as, as you want to think, but but it has a bother. glorious literary tradition behind it of writing yes. pornography and saying I'm exposing the church. Yes, exactly. And uh, but it was also meant uh, not only to be a uh, you know juicy popular pornography, but also as a shot at the church. Yeah, it, it's it's a twofer. But in the 1880s, he changes his target, and so he uh, trains. His, uh, uh, sharpened pen on, uh, on the occult and he infiltrates, uh, occult circles, uh, particularly a, uh, a guy named Jules Douanel, who was the founder of the Gnostic Church. He, uh, then briefly becomes a Freemason, but they have a way of sniffing out posers and they kick him out nearly, uh, nearly immediately. But about 1885 then, uh, he has a big time conversion to guess what, Ken? Oh, let's guess. Could it Catholicism. be? Yay. His former enemy is now his pal. And so that's right. And that never goes wrong. Ask that anyone. That never goes wrong. And, uh, so he's like the, the David Horowitz or David oh, Brock of his day. Right. Um, and so he then reveals the scoop on Freemasonry because he was, he was never really a Freemason, he says, but he was merely infiltrating them in order to get the scoop on them. And so he then uh, publishes a series of uh, uh, books. Uh, the best-selling uh, one has the uh, Alephus Levy's famous image of Baphomet on it, and it is uh, Takshil who takes that image, which, granted, was ripe for the picking. Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, there. Because, of course, uh, Levy didn't think it was sinister at all to have a, a weird goat figure posing with... Uh, but. Takshil knew what that looked like, and he put it on the cover of his book. And so he is uh, uh, describing the global conspiracy of uh, Freemasons. And so he takes all the things that people 
uh, already believe or want to believe about masonry, because of course he's not the first one to say that uh, there's uh, crazy satanic rites going on at your uh, local lodge, but he's one who, who codifies it and, and makes it colorful and uh, and uh, finds uh, lots of ways to go after the Freemasons politically. Uh, you've probably already figured out that at this point in uh, France, the Freemasons are associated with the professional class. Uh, they are therefore the uh, kind of urban uh, liberals uh, opposed to the uh, right-wing forces that are aligned with the with the Catholic Church. And so this uh, absolutely has a big-time political aspect to it. But Takshil does not let, you know, just ordinary politics uh, trammel his fun. He's got some exciting imagery to go with it. So uh, he uh, blames... Uh, first of all, he names the worldwide uh, Masonic conspiracy as the Palladium. And right. so it's, uh, it's, it's all around the globe. Its fingers are everywhere. And most notably, it is uh, centered in the uh, basic, uh, you know, the, the volcano of evil in the world, of course, is the United States, uh, specifically Charleston, South Carolina. Right. Uh, which we all know is essentially both Sodom and Gomorrah in one at this point. That's right. And and the shadowy Albert Pike. The shadowy Albert Pike. Who is uh, uh, beloved by conspiracy theorists ever since. So he's not just contributing the image of Baphomet. He's not just contributing all the other great fun. He's the guy who makes Albert Pike uh, into the uh, the go-to conspiratology uh, segment that he is today. Right. He's the the American Adam Weishaupt, basically. Right. Yeah. Now, is, is Pike an, was he an actual person that yeah. Pike Sheila is producing? He was a Confederate general and uh, and the head of Scotch Rite Masonry in the, in, the, in America. So, uh, in his uh, book, uh, which he writes in 1892, so this and, is already... After Pike is comfortably dead, I will point out. Right. <laughs> so he doesn't travel across the Atlantic and horse whip him. Exactly. Uh, Pick someone safely dead is, is always, uh, when you're planning to slander somebody. Um, so, uh, in 1892, he writes, uh, the devil in the 19th century. And this is when he gets really creative because he introduces a character. Uh, you know, he's a skilled writer. He, he knows that people want to relate to a particular person. So he introduces the reformed Satanist archpriestess, Diana Vaughn. Uh, and he, uh, describes, uh, all of her various, uh, satanic doings before she, uh, reformed and blew the gaff on, uh, uh, satanic Freemasonry. Um, and so it includes her encounters with incarnate demons. Uh, you know, she got, uh, uh, Diana got down with some of these demons, although I don't think she was romantically linked to the, uh, crocodilian demon that played the piano. Uh, I think he was just like, you know, play it again crocodile demon and and, and here he um uh here he's uh he's prefiguring uh the sort of uh characters that were rife in my youth in oklahoma the sort of guys who were evangelical preachers who said before they found the lord they were high up in satan's hierarchy and Mm -hmm. the classic one of those of course is michael warnke who was a um uh a grifter and self-aggrandizer par excellence who made a, a gigantic splash as a former high priest of Satan who, who Jesus done fixed. And so once more, we see that uh, there is nothing new under the sun. Yes. In fact, and specific things in tax shield, because he's the template for, for this, right? The, yeah. And it's Oklahoma. So they're not Catholics. They're evangelicals, but he laid out the whole dynamic. Yeah. He laid out the whole grift. Um, it, it, images, uh, from his stuff come down all the way into Jack Chick tracks and therefore, uh, wind up, uh, you know, uh, bumping up against us in the role playing world. And, and we've already talked about Satanic Panic in a recent episode. So he's the, he's the one who, uh, uh, laid all the groundwork for how to, how to run that grift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, in 1897, uh, he announces that he's going to introduce the world to Di- Diana Vaughn. She's finally going to come forward. He has already written a first person, uh, autobiography now about her and she's going to f- come uh, forward and meet the press and at this press conference he announces that guess what Ken it <laughs> I, was I, all a hoax what? it was a hoax all along again? again the hoaxer hoaxed someone yes Tell me. Uh, he, re- he uh, affirms 
that uh, he, he's been anti-clerical all along. He infiltrated the church in order to screw it over. And in fact, he's been making fun of the church's fear of Freemasonry. Uh, in other words, heavily profiting from everyone's fear of Freemasonry and giving it a greater depth and uh, shading and detail and crocodilian piano players. Uh, but I guess he figures uh, it's time to time to roll that around and uh, and switch uh, uh, yet again. So uh, he's not an, an occultist per se, but he's probably had more influence on uh, the occult and on a litany than uh, uh, maybe any of the other uh, uh, figures that we'll uh, cover in the weeks ahead. And I would like to point out that my man A.E. Waite uh, exposed him before that press conference. He knew what was up. He said, there are no Palladians, or rather, there are these Palladians, and there are different Palladians. Therefore, you're wrong about that. Therefore, your whole uh, uh, bully rag is a tissue of lies. Uh, and A.E. Waite uh, had his number uh, back in 1896. So, good for you. Right, because as a real occultist, he, he knew that if there were piano-playing crocodiles, that he would have met one already. Yeah, he would have, because he was A.E. Waite, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, you'll be, you'll be glad to know that, um, uh, uh, Taxiel died, uh, in, uh, away from Paris in, in the sticks, uh, the word, the fate worse than death, uh, to a French writer and, uh, not at a particularly old age either. So there we are. He died at like 52. Well, you know, the, uh, the life of the grift is a hard one and eventually you run out of zigs to zag back into. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the Wikipedia entry, he then moved away from Paris, I suspect, um, uh, <laughs> covers a encouraged. multitude of rock throwing, uh, mobs. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, uh, speaking of rock throwing mobs, uh, we better, uh, clear out of here before, uh, any of those come for us. Uh, so let's, uh, uh wave goodbye and promise to be back uh, next week at the same time. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop this podcast from becoming a mere footnote by joining such Patreon backers as... The Esoteric Order of Role Players, Garrett Fitzgerald. John Buck- Lee Carnell and Louis Sylvester. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest shirt design, Fun Ruiner. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.